0: Oh, hello. You've reached episode 18 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Moving forward with this month's theme of neuroimaging, we're pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Robert Chen, who is a senior scientist at the Kremble Research Institute's Division of Brain Imaging and Behavior, Systems Neuroscience, at Toronto Western Hospital. Dr. Chen's passion for academic medicine is evident. When we asked him if he'd ever had a moment of doubt about becoming a physician scientist, without skipping a beat, he said, no. No. His research team leverages computational and neuroimaging techniques to learn more about what causes Parkinson's disease, a neurodegenerative disorder that impacts movement. He's also a major proponent of a cool technique called deep brain stimulation, or DBS, to treat this and other brain illnesses. By using a multimodal approach to therapeutic intervention, his team has learned a lot about how the brain is organized to control movement and behavior and continues to improve outcomes for patients. Now, if you enjoy the show, let us know about it on social media, at Raw Talk Podcast, or leave us a comment on our website. Okay, people, prepare to get your brain stimulated. The show's about to begin. How did you get to be interested in the brain?
1: Well, I'm interested first in neurology. So I was started by doing medical school training, and then I got interested in neurology, which is, of course, diseases of the brain. I find that this area very interesting because you can um, make deductions of you know, what the problem, the way the problem is by your knowledge of anatomy and physiology. And so I find that fascinating, you know, that you can use uh, history and clinical examination to deduce you know, what the problem is. Um, And there's a variety of presentations. So that's what I got first interest in the brain. When I first actually came to Toronto, I did a master's degree with uh, Dr. Peter Ashby, Um, who is a physiologist. So I actually got that interest in um, brain physiology and also in, um, in movement disorder. So that's what, you know, how I got things started.
0: And uh, you're a physician scientist by trade? That's correct. So yeah. you're gra- you say your graduate training came after your medical training? That's correct. So what prompted you to do some research to get into graduate school?
1: So uh, I did some research actually during medical school. Um, I spent a year uh, doing some research. So now I, my, I was I went to medical school in Cambridge in UK. So one year I did was reproductive immunology. So I found it Medical research, interesting, you know, is different from you know, regular medical school. So that's why I want to get into research. Although I, so I work with animals, you know, with so I think it's interesting to work. But then I feel this is not exactly the field that I want to do research in, I and mean, research in general. So when I go to clinical training, I look at different types of research. I actually did some research in uh, not only research, immunology in diabetes. Um, then I found basically the neurology of brain fascinating, that's why I go into this area.
0: Yeah. And could you tell me a little bit about your graduate project uh, that you did here?
1: Yeah. So what I did was to look at uh, something we call cutaneous reflex, which is we stimulate the uh, basically the digit, which is the cutaneous input, and see how it changes the motor output. Um. So we study normal subjects and also uh, some patients with uh, something called stimulus sensitive myoclonus. So these are patients with degenerative disorder called cortical basal degeneration, and you touch them, they the muscle, the hands or the leg just jerks. So what we did is to try to figure out what pathway is abnormal in these people, and so we use the cutting reflex and. Um, figure out the latency of the response, and deduce that it is uh, through a pathway that from the skin to go all the way up to the cortex and come back down, that causes the, the muscle jerk.
0: And uh, what kind of techniques did you use to leverage that?
1: That we mainly use is uh electrophysiology, in electrical physiology, so nerve stimulation, EMG recording. Um, we also use uh, magnetic brain stimulation or transmetics and TMS.
0: And of course, that makes sense because uh, it doesn't sound like you stray too far from that interest, given that today you work with individuals who have Parkinson's disease and other uh, movement disorders. So could you tell me a little bit about what your main research question is?
1: My main research question overall is how the brain controls movement, and how is this disturbed in people with movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease and dystonia? And then how can we improve treatment uh, in these Group of patients, so this is a like overall uh, research theme.
0: In undergrad I took a couple mm-hmm. courses and I learned that Parkinson's, like you say, is a degenerative disorder, caused largely through reduction in dopamine activity that, that controls movement, but that the causes of Parkinson's are not really well understood. Has that been improved upon?
1: Yeah. so th- I think there's certainly some advance in this area. So there are now quite a large number of genes has been identified that will cause Parkinson's disease. These are by and large are relatively rare, so majority of patients we see do not at least have a known gene that we know of. There are also a number of other genes that predispose us to Parkinson's. So they by itself doesn't really cause Parkinson's, but increase the risk of, of getting it. And there is also effects of environment because we don't think gene you know is the only cause. So for some people maybe who has a, a very strong inherited. A mutation that would probably would cause it. But for majority of people we think that is probably a, a mix of genetic predisposition and some environmental factors. We don't fully understand the environmental factors. you know people have hypothesized that some sort of toxin, um, like well water may have high risk or could be well water. Yeah, so some people hypothesize will be some pesticides or some other toxin, uh, certain things actually seem to be protective uh, interestingly. Caffeine seems to be protective. Interesting that yeah. that's good news for me, <laughs>
0: and probably for you as a scientist. That's
1: right. Yeah, and also actually, one smoking appeared to be protective, which is probably the only thing that smoking seems to be protective. But so, do you think
0: that smoking or nicotine specifically?
1: Uh, I don't think that has been completely resolved. Um, the one, at least one hypothesis, which you know, has not been proven, is that smoking might damage your nasal mucosa, which. If the you know, hypothesized you know, pathogen or toxin comes through nasal mucosa, then this could be one of the magnets. I mean, the other is obvious that uh, it's not really the cause, it's association. You know, it's that people who are prone to perhaps somehow would be aversive to smoking, or, for example.
0: So, in addition to doing research, you also treat patients. Yes. How many patients would you say you see in a given week?
1: Ah, uh, that's yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm, so I'm a surgeon, clinician scientist. So I usually my usual clinic is two half days a week, but also you know do some other clinic maybe one, one or two times a month, and then I do on call. So this is quite variable. How many patients see week? So I would say on the average, probably between twenty to forty something like that. But it's quite variable.
0: And they all have a variety of different movement disorders.
1: Yeah, so I mainly see people move, so yeah, so the commonest is Parkinson's disease, the second one is dystonia, so, and then the, the third is a variety of the tremor, like essential tremor. Yeah, so I do, uh, in my clinical, I do uh, Parkinson's, movement clinic. I also do quite a bit of botulinum toxin injection. These are mainly treatment of people with dystonia.
0: And you mentioned dystonia, what exactly is that? So
1: dystonia is a condition that is characterized by excessive involuntary muscle contraction, often causing kind of twisted posture. So there are various types of dystonia, some are genetic, so the whole body is affected, people have kind of twisted arms and legs, you know, they may be um, unable to walk, but often some of these get normal intelligence, so it could be children, uh, but the more common form we see is we call focal dystonia in adults. So, only often one body part is affected. Could be the eye that you know causes involuntary eye closure. Neck people turn or twist it to one side. Uh, a condition that I have some interest in is called uh, focal hand dystonia. Some call writers' cramp. So people have often no other problem except they right, then the hand cramps up. And some people I seen people call musicians' cramp. So people often uh musicians, some are professional musicians, but and they often have no other problem except when they play the musical instrument, then they have a cramping uh, of their hands or their fingers or the wrists. And
0: do you think there's a genetic, a similar genetic predisposition for dystonias as there is Parkinson's, or is it something completely environmental?
1: Oh, that is definitely genetic predisposition. So um, many people with generalized dystonia, My whole body has a genetic background there, again many genes has been identified. But most patients we see with these focal, say just the hand, just the neck, we don't have a identified gene. So again, we think that is a combination of genetic predisposition and also some environmental factors. So I think particularly in people with like writer's Cram or musician's Cram, we think that it is excessive practice or an abnormal type of brain plasticity, that uh, these cause or predispose to this type of condition.
0: I see. And how common would you say these are in the population compared to, say, Parkinson's, which is maybe, I'm guessing, about 1%? Yes.
1: Yeah, so these are, well, I would say, they're still pretty generally less common. We do see quite a bit because, well, one, because we are kind of a referral center. But if you people have looked at in the sense that the epidemiology is not as well documented, because we think many people have dystonia, they might not come to see the doctors. Because often it's not that well known, say by a GP. Some people have to see several doctors before they get diagnosed. But overall, somebody had to suggest that they, you know if you take all types of dystonia, they they probably pretty similar to multiple sclerosis. You know? So it's not that uncommon, but there are many different subtypes. Right.
0: So given that, say, dystonia is kind of on a spectrum with Parkinson's, would you say that the brain areas that are affected are the same as in Parkinson's?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. So uh, there's definitely overlap in the areas affected. So we think that in both dystonia and Parkinson, the basal ganglia plays a very important role. And in fact, treatment of both conditions involve. Uh, for example, deep brain stimulation of the basal ganglia, and certain targets are the same, uh, like the internal globus pallidus, can be used to treat both Parkinson and dystonia. So there is definitely, you know, in terms of the area affected by the brain, an overlap in that. On the other hand, they are very different diseases. Parkinson, you like you called call hypokinetic disorder, so patients don't move as much, whereas dystonia is kind of classed as hyperkinetic, so people have too much movement. So their physiology is different. And and Parkinson you know, is a degenerative condition. So the degeneration of neurons and also many other areas in the brain. On the other hand, dystonia in general, there is no the obvious brain degeneration. So we I mean it's if you like is really the classical kind of circuit problem uh, in the brain.
0: And so you mentioned deep brain stimulation as a, a treatment, potential treatment for mm-hmm. dystonia and other movement disorders. Could you tell me a little bit about how that works?
1: Deep brain stimulation is done by putting electrode in part of the basal ganglia nucleus. The commonest site is the subthalamic nucleus for Parkinson's disease, and the globus pallidus or internal globus pallidus for Parkinson's disease and dystonia, and the thalamus for tremor. I mean there also being done for other conditions as well, uh, for example depression, uh, people have an obsessive compulsive disorder, etc. So it, was put, it actually was put in the brain and then it is connected to a pulse generator which generates an electrical uh, impulse uh, to stimulate the brain area. The question actually of how the mechanism is actually very interesting because we don't actually know exactly how it works. You just know that it works. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So actually, this is one of the research area is, is into how we've actually written quite a bit about how it works. But, but the I think the current uh, hypothesis of theory is that it's probably a mix of both inhibition and, and excitation. So, for example, the uh, deep brain stimulation could inhibit the area that it's implanted into. On the other hand, it could excite the uh, output fibers from the areas, and also often antidromically excite the input fibers to that area, and sometimes maybe also be the passing fibers as well. So it's and also so it has uh, a very complicated. In terms short term effect and long term effect, we actually was interested in is it induces brain plasticity, not only in the area is uh, it's being stimulated, but also connected area. So we think is a put a mixture of inhibition facilitation and also a mix of short-term acute effects and long-term plasticity.
2: This is Erin. And this is Kat. And in today's segment of Ask a Student, we have the pleasure of sitting down with James, who's one of Dr. Chen's graduate students. So welcome.
3: Thank you. Um,
2: so can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure.
3: So I'm a master's student who just started at the IMS this past September. Mm-hmm. I came from an undergrad at Western University, and thus far I'm having a great experience here. I uh, joined the student council here IMSA, mm-hmm. and uh, meeting a lot of great people, getting a lot of good research done, and uh, uh, on its way now, so yeah.
4: Very cool. So, as Aaron mentioned, you're in Dr. Robert Chen's lab. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there and what your research entails?
3: Sure. So my project is using a a modality called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, to study cortical excitability in patients with Parkinson's disease. Specifically, my project is looking at interactions between different circuits in the motor cortex in Parkinson's disease, and this hasn't been done before, and that's why uh, I was initially very interested in this project.
4: Could you tell us a little bit about how TMS works? Dr. Chen mentions it briefly in the episode, but I was just wondering, um, from a student perspective, sort of how would you explain it to someone like me who knows nothing about your area of research?
3: (laughs) Right, so um, generally with our experiments, we have a participant who comes in, uh, typically either it's a healthy person or someone with a neurological disease, Mm -hmm. and they sit down in a chair. We use a magnetic coil, Mm -hmm. which is attached to a stimulator, and in this coil, it's about the size of your hand maybe. This particular one that we use uh, from our experiments, it sort of looks like a figure of eight. It's called a figure of eight coil, Um, and there are sort of loops of metal wire and current gets passed through very quickly Mm -hmm. it induces a magnetic field and that's done when the coil is placed directly on top of the scalp so the the purpose of that is to excite the cortex and specifically in our research often the motor cortex
2: so you mentioned that you did your background, at your undergraduate um, degree at Western. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in this field and, and maybe was that, did your education there sort of play a role in that?
3: Sure, yeah. Um, so I specialized at Western uh, in, in physiology. I now study neurophysiology, so there's a good bridge there, but I'd say... Um, The first sort of experience with this, anything related to this kind of work uh, was a couple summers ago. I did a summer project at CAMH using TMS, similar uh, tool, but in the context of psychiatric disorders. So worked with a professor there, Dr. Jeff Daskalakis. We did the same sort of experiments, but on people with Schizophrenia and obsessive compulsive disorder, and looked at how uh, impulses travel across the brain in that context. Um, so after that, I went back to Western for my final year, and I did a thesis project on the mechanisms of reaching movements. Mm-hmm. So quite different, just on healthy people trying to understand the neural mechanisms of such movements and grasps, and. After that final year, I, I sort of, I heard of Dr. Chen's lab, partly because uh, uh, Jeff Daskalakis was supervised by Dr. Chen in the, in the late 90s. Oh, really? So there's that nice crossover there. And it happened that someone else in, a, in, a, in our lab group at Western was going to this lab in, mm-hmm. at UFT. So yeah. heard many good things from various people. And I was really interested in the work. It's a great site, so it was a good fit.
4: That's awesome. Dr. Chen talks a lot about the different types of research that happen in his lab. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience so far with um, your lab culture and if you know you have, I don't know if you have a big lab or a small lab, and sort of how you've um, found that experience so far.
3: I've been in a very big lab at, uh, at CAMH mm-hmm. at Western. It was a small lab. Um, so coming to this, it, I, I think it's fairly big. Uh, in our lab, there's many neurologists, technicians, about five graduate students. Um, and honestly, everyone is very helpful towards each other. Mm-hmm. A lot of these experiments require multiple people to hold, hold many coils or mm-hmm. work the computer while the patient or participant is seated so everyone's always accommodating in that sense and um, not even just data collection but in terms of understanding material and discussing science at lab meetings or in the lab i've had a great experience so far
4: It's always interesting for me to hear about other people's labs, especially when they're very large and very diverse in terms of the type of research that we do, because my lab in particular, we have multiple projects, but we also have a very, very small uh, team that works in different capacities on these different projects. So um, I'm always curious just to see how a bigger lab dynamic works.
3: Right, yeah, Um, there's there's always, as I'm sure... Uh, Robert Chen mentioned there's so many different projects on different movement disorders, mm-hmm. Parkinson's, mm-hmm. Uh, dystonia, and others.
4: Various types of tremors. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So different techniques being used: d- DBS, mm-hmm. TMS, the combination of the two to look at sort of how uh, how d- there are interactions between the cortical level and deeper in the brain with DBS. So mm-hmm. I find it very, uh, it's a it's a good environment to learn. Uh, A wide variety about movement disorders.
4: Yeah, to get a good overview Mm -hmm. of of the different types and also the different treatments.
2: It was also really cool how you talked about um, you you previously did a research project on TMS in like OCD, for instance, um, and he talks a little bit about how TMS is used for a variety of disorders, so I think that's great.
3: Yeah, so I think one of the few disorders that repetitive TMS, which is really high-frequency stimulation. It's only approved for treatment of major depressive disorders, so that's sort of what uh, was done in that lab before, and it, it has many uses in terms of studying and treatment as well.
4: We actually have a podcast episode with Dr. Albert Wong over at Chem-H, um, and he's a clinician scientist, and he works with Um, That kind of population, and his lab also uses RTMS um, for major depressive disorders, so everything's just coming together, (laughs) all the links coming through.
0: (laughs) At what point in a patient's disease would they come to see you, and you would then say, oh, you probably require DBS in order to... Feel a little bit better.
1: Right, right. So, for example, for Parkinson's disease, over the years we have been now moved to doing DBS earlier than we used. to. We used fairly advanced patients. So, now we are doing it more to like moderately advanced patients. So, the typical person that would be suited for DBS would be relatively young. Treatable DBS is what we call fluctuations. So, people often in advanced Parkinson's patients have periods of we call it too much movement. And then a period of not enough movement um, kind of fluctuates from over time rapidly. So uh, DPS has the effects of essentially smoothing out uh, these fluctuations. So DPS is not a cure for this uh, Parkinson's. I mean, it will often lead to a reduction in the medication. And again, and, better better is kind of smoother. Uh, so patients can have spent more time in what we call the on-state that they can function properly. And... Less time with not too much movement or not enough movement.
0: I think that the average neuroscience student would be familiar with L-DOPA, so it's this mm-hmm. sort of replacement therapy yes, yes. Uh, for Parkinson's disease to yes. uh, replace lost dopamine. Yeah. Is that still happening? Is that still a treatment?
1: Yes, yes. So L-DOPA is still the main state of treatment, it's still you know, the most effective drug we have. I mean, it's been used for many years right now, uh, but uh, it's just still the most effective drug. So almost all patients on Parkinson's at, you know, at some point will have to be on, uh, on levodopa, L-dopa. Uh, we use other drugs together with it as well, but it's still the, um, like the mainstay of the medical treatment for Parkinson's disease.
0: But why do you think that something like a deep brain stimulation offers an advantage over, say, L-dopa?
1: I think one problem with L-dopa is that uh, it is a pro-drug. It got, abs- uh, got into the brain, that's stored in neurons. So as the disease progress, the duration of action of Aldo become quite short. Sometimes it be as short as the half life you know, of the drug, which is about about two hours. So one dose something only lasts for two hours, and then we can, and then there are variable absorption. So you know, often, so it often lead to these motor or even non motor fluctuation. So when you absorb a lot, people too much movement, and then not enough, then people not enough movement. On the other hand, deep brain stimulation is a it's constant because it is delivered all the time so so it's a more much more stable if like uh, and and with that we often can is able to reduce the dose of uh, of levodopa usually we cannot completely replace it so i think I miso mean, in more advanced it often used together to um try to reduce some of these complication which is related to use of levodopa and also parkinson's itself.
0: And more broadly, I think that brain stimulation techniques are entering the mainstream. I mean, a couple of weeks ago when I was in the U.S., I heard a commercial on the radio advertising RTMS, yes. uh, it's trans- uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, to treat mood disorders. Yes. Do you think that deep brain stimulation will also sort of enter the mainstream and be used more commonly to treat not only, say, movement disorders, but, but other brain disorders? And-
1: we actually do quite a bit of TMS in our lab. We have done... Uh, TMS, for example, treatment of Parkinson's disease, and also for treatment of stroke. The what usually for the treatment, what you have to do because obviously it's not an implanted system, so you have to deliver course of stimulation. So you people you know subject has to come in every day for treatment, which probably lasts maybe fifteen minutes, uh, typically for several weeks in a row. So Monday to Friday. In the past, we did the two weeks in the depression study. People have. Done in every four to six weeks and often the effects will last several months.
0: This is due to new connections being made in the brain?
1: Yes. Well, this is definitely I we think that it's due to uh, plasticity. So, so so the for example, we think the high frequency TMS will increase brain excitability. And if you do it repeatedly, it will the effect will extend beyond your period of stimulation. Uh, in addition to the area that we're stimulating, it also uh, have effects on interconnected remote areas of the brain. So there are, you know, uh, 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 because different parts of the brain connected. So we actually, we and I have done some study show that if you stimulate, for example, TMS part of the brain, you only not affect the area, but also. Like the into the connectivity of our brain, so we think that the effects is a result of a plasticity induced in the brain. Uh, I think exactly what is you know whether it is new connection, maybe, but I think that perhaps at least in the shorter term, more likely is already existing connection, but is being strengthened. Uh, whereas some other connection could be weakened.
0: And for the listener, uh, what exactly is neuroplasticity?
1: The neuroplasticity is essentially the ability of the brain to change in response to often uh, stimulation. I mean, it is is uh, obviously uh, underpinning of like learning and memory, and also how it recovers from injury, for example. An example, perhaps, is certain stroke. Plasticity could be involved if part of the brain is not working because of the stroke, Uh, but the recovery could be from, in terms like plastic, from for example the neighboring area of the brain taking over the function of the brain that is affected by the stroke. Or it could be the other side, the contralateral hemisphere, maybe homologs again taking over some of the functions of that area. So this will be a form of plasticity.
2: As a first-year master's student, do you have any advice for maybe any potential students that want to get into this field or that maybe want to work in your lab?
3: So, at the end of my final year, I wasn't—I admittedly wasn't sure what I wanted to do in that next year, and I—I I did apply very late to IMS and in contacting uh, supervisors. I think it was during the final semester and into the summer. I was sort of finally getting progress with that Mm -hmm. I definitely suggest uh, getting a head start because (laughs) I got very lucky I think Um, just in terms of someone was leaving the lab and I kind of got to take over Mm -hmm. I don't think that opportunity happens often in terms of how seamless in fact that my first day was her last day of (laughs) postdoc that left so um, I'd suggest to start early contacting uh, supervisors look into what they do and see whether you'd like that kind of work or not, like when I was applying to the IMS, I did look at other supervisors as well, but I'd, I don't think I'd thrive as well in a wet lab environment um, because of I had a bit of experience in third and fourth year of my undergrad and I just wasn't I wasn't as good as at that kind of work and I, I don't think I was in, as interested so mm-hmm. know what kind of work you want to do for sure mm-hmm. and sort of decide what sort of health area or physiological area like.
2: That's great advice. What was the
4: the catalyst for you to apply? So now you mentioned that you applied fairly late. Um, what happened <laughs> that yeah. made you, you know, get to it? Um, so
3: going into fourth year, I I thought that I didn't want to do graduate st- school at all. I, I like research. <laughs> yeah,
4: a lot, a lot changes,
3: a lot changes. It
4: does indeed. Um,
3: so I, I kind of thought that I just wanted to maybe perhaps work as like a research... Uh, analyst or mm-hmm. in that sort of role. Um, but during my fourth year thesis, when you kind of, it's the beginnings of, you get your own project, mm-hmm. and it's sort of your your thing, I thought that was really cool, because I hadn't had that yet. It Undergrad was just learning, getting lectured. This was, you get your own thing. You get to sort of make discoveries by yourself, mm-hmm. with others, mm-hmm. working with others, but You get to decide the direction that you go in, Mm -hmm. and that's what was the big draw to me.
4: That's great. I actually had a similar experience where going into fourth year grad school was not on my mind, and then I did this awesome fourth year research project, and that's the lab that I'm currently in, Okay. Um, so I can definitely relate to that. And I think we'll wrap up today's segment here. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. It's always wonderful to hear about other graduate students and how they got to where they are today. So this was Ask a Student with Kat and Aaron. And now back to the podcast.
0: So given that Parkinson's is, is, and I guess other movement disorders, Mm -hmm. are complex disorders, so they have genetic and environmental contributions, I imagine that you must collaborate quite a bit with more molecular scientists, maybe doing some animal models. Is that true?
1: People, we collaborate... um uh, include within the hospital, uh, the you know, Toronto Western or uh, the Cranbrook Research Institute, include neurosurgeons who do uh, DBS, um, uh, other neurophysiologists who do a recording from the basal ganglia, like as Dr. Hutchison, uh, DBS, uh, like Dr. Luzano, Calia, uh, Hodai. Uh, so we have another neurology team. Um, I also collaborate with uh, geneticists. We have interest in um, how it was the genetic. Uh, mainly I think different single nucleotide polymorphism affects uh, brain uh, excitability and plasticity. Um, so, I've worked with Dr. Albert Wong and Dr. Kennedy at Cambridge, And so, I also do psychiatrist psychiatrists because uh, psychiatry has involved a lot of brain stimulation, particularly TMS, um, Dr. Jeff Darsalakis, and also. I have other collaboration with um, from imaging colleagues. Um, uh, I Dr. Karen Davis and Dr. Joyce Chan at Sunnybrook. The other is biomedical engineering. We have interest, particularly in the DPS system. Uh, Dr. Papovich, uh, for example, uh, biomedical engineering, uh, is a collaborator, and also with other sites as well. For London Ontario, we have a ongoing collaboration of. Uh, uh, special type of deep brain simulation project and I also actually have some collaboration with research in China as well.
0: So I I think that just goes to show how (laughs) multifaceted these disorders are. I mean one would just listen and think oh it's a movement disorder that affects one part of the brain so just you know turn on that part of the brain and then the the, the disorder goes away but uh, it sounds like there's a lot more to it than that so there's the genetic component there's the brain sort of imaging component you might be able to look at say how uh, behavior is changing in, in patients as well. So I guess having a good research team relies upon a lot of good collaboration, and that's sort of a cornerstone to, to effective research.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we uh, you know, look at many different areas of sound. We talk about deep brain stimulation, movement. But we've also called them, uh, some cognitive aspects of some we have looked at. Uh, using DPA, looking at stopping of movement, um, more cognitive tasks, for example, like a Stroop task, because um, say Parkinson is not only a motor disorder, there are also many other cognitive, uh, impulse control, other non-motor symptoms, and again we also you know use different techniques. You know? So we have talked about deep brain stimulation, we used a lot, of transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is non-invasive stimulation. Um, we have used brain imaging, uh, functional MRI studies, uh, we're looking into things like MEG, uh encephalopathy studies, and, and kinematic studies. So we think I think we need a, um, you know, it, uh, each, I think, method has its own advantage and disadvantage. And I think, you know, if we, we try to combine we can take advantage of advantage of each of these different methods to get a better picture because the brain is very complex and not just one area is affected and almost all disease looked in multiple areas infected so I think we've used different methods and well, often have to collaborate with different uh, people uh, who expertise in the area we I think we get a you know better whole picture of uh, what's happening
0: and it sounds like as a physician scientist you're at a really good vantage point it's kind of a two-way street because you get to treat the patient, so you get to improve the patient outcomes, but also in doing so, you get to learn more about how the brain works, how does it organize movement, but also it sounds like many other things.
1: Yes, I, th- I think I, I do like that aspect because I think, I mean, I treat patients, so I do have, I think, a perspective of what the patients like and you know, what are the challenges in the clinic and often. So I think it's a two-way street. Sometimes some of the research question comes from you know, clinical observation, uh, but also, uh, obviously, the other way around, research, we hope to bring some of the results back to the clinic.
0: So what are some of the biggest challenges remaining in treating movement disorders, and how does that impact your research question?
1: I mean, there's still a number of challenges. I think, talk about deep brain stimulation, it, it works, um, but we don't know exactly how it works. I think if we know how it works, then we will have a better idea how to make it better. For example... Um, one area we're interested in looking at in the longer term is something called closed-loop stimulation. Currently, they should turn on and set like that. But if we can sense what's happening in the brain, what kind of state the patient, then we can automatically adjust the stimulation parameters to what the patient, the state of the patient. Then I think we can improve you know, the... Uh, the method the outcome of deep brain stimulation that uh, the other is look at different target areas and um, the other I think in terms of Parkinson is that we have really good training for the motor problems we don't have very good training for the non-motor problems things like cognitive impairment apathy uh, impulse control disorder so if we look at other brain areas that are maybe more involved in these. Uh, for example using magnetic brain stimulation, I think this is another area that we need to go into. Uh, overall, I mean, we currently don't have any cure, even DBS you know, is a good treatment, but it's not a cure. So, you know, a lot of work, like obviously, has been done to see if we can also alter the underlying uh, neurodegeneration as well. It's
0: fascinating, but it sounds like it's come a long way. Yes, yes. yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be looking out for future studies, and hopefully undergrads in a couple of years will be learning more about just the dopamine hypothesis and, and L-DOPA as a sort of determinants of Parkinson's disease and treatment.
1: Yes, yes. I think that the uh, things advancing a lot, I'm sure that a lot of new advice will come out in the next few years.
0: Dr. Chen, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks yeah. for being on
0: the show. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
3: Going into fourth year, I thought that I didn't want to do graduate school at all. I, I look for research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>